0: This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.
1: In this episode, we review the FCPA Resource Guide, which was released on July 2nd. We take a look at the Novartis FCA Settlement for Corruption Inside the United States, We take a look at a plan to restore trust in South Africa's anti-corruption enforcement. We consider a reassessment of due diligence in China. A recent ruling in England that said Venezuela cannot get its gold out of the United Kingdom. Amazon settles an OFAC sanctions enforcement action. We look at an article from Jim Deloche on how you can make a risk management committee more effective. We consider Deutsche Bank and its role in the Jeffrey Epstein scandal, Matt Kelly and radical compliance. Carrie Penman talks about going from disaster recovery to business continuity. On The Compliance Life, we introduce Scott Sullivan and his journey through compliance. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with uh, Mr. Monitors, himself, Jay Rosen, for This Week in FCPA, Episode 213, for the week ending July 10, 2020, the second edition edition. As the Department of Justice and Securities and Exchange Commission drop a second edition to the FCPA Resources Guide, At 5 p.m. on Thursday, July 2nd, we are back to brave the surge in COVID cases while staying safe to look at some of the top compliance and ethics
0: stories of the week. Jay, what say you? I say you've been uh, diving in all week to the FCPA Resource Guide, and I know our viewers are interested in hearing from you what you think the new salient changes are.
1: So the FCPA Resources Guide was first released in uh, November 2012. It is the single best one-volume reference for all things FCPA. While I, in my role as the compliance evangelist, humbly think I've written the best one-volume book on compliance programs, uh, this FCPA Resource Guide is by far the best one-volume resource on all things FCPA. The original edition cost only $25 in hard copy or soft copy, uh, paper copy, I should say. It was uh, f- available at no charge on the uh, Department of Justice website. It is a fabulous compendium. It has case law. It has uh, laws ancillary to the FCPA. It has in uh, detailed interpretations of the accounting provisions. It has hypotheticals. It has declinations. It has the full co- uh, text of the statute. And of course, it had the 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program. You can quibble with interpretations Around uh, some of the case law, like the DOJ, SEC interpretations. So uh, it was a great resource, and now they've updated that resource. Uh, the we've had a lot obviously happen in the last eight years, uh, FCPA enforcement and compliance wise. Some of the highlights, Jay, were the FCPA uh, corporate enforcement policy was announced, of course, in November. Uh, 2017 by then uh, DAG, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, and the FCPA Corporate Enforcement Policy uh, basically said that uh, if you self-disclose, effectively uh, uh, remediate, extensively cooperate, and pay back your ill-gotten gains in the form of profit disgorgement, uh, you will have the presumption of a declination. So we've got that. From the compliance practitioner perspective, uh, they, we have a new hallmark, no longer the 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program, but now 11, with this hallmark entitled Investigation, Analysis, and Remediation of Conduct. And it starts with a, a line that I'm going to quote because I found it to be so powerful, Jay. The truest measure of, of an effective compliance program is how it responds to misconduct. Accordingly, for a compliance program to be truly effective, it must have a well-functioning and appropriately funded mechanism for the timely and thorough investigations of any allegations or suspicions of misconduct by the company. So uh, it's really calling for more than it's simply an investigation. It's calling for a root, root cause analysis and utilizing that root cause analysis for um uh, inclusion back into Remediate Your Compliance Program. In addition to the uh, these two points, we have um, a series of declinations that have been uh, announced that are all detailed in the uh, second edition. There is information on the uh, accounting provisions. The second edition in Includes two key clarifications regarding the application of books and records and internal control provisions, uh, particularly in, uh, which have grown uh, in prominence in recent years, particularly in SEC matters, as a powerful tool to bring enforcement actions absent direct allegations of bribery uh, in the The government's view that is in the absence of the statute of limitations, substantive violations of the anti-bribery provisions are subject to a five-year statute of limitations, whereas criminal uh, violations of the FCPA accounting provisions are subject to a six-year. So uh, interesting uh, interpretation there. We've got the... um, of what used to be the one pie concept that was formalized as the anti-piling on program, and now it's called coordinated resolutions. Basically, the DOJ and SEC will coordinate their resolutions. Other U.S. government agencies may well coordinate their resolutions for anti-corruption enforcement. But more importantly for the compliance practitioner, Jay, is the um, international cooperation, which has been something that's ongoing and is really now formalized. Um, we have uh, a further clarification of uh, the policy, the corporate enforcement policy around successor liability, and the DOJ has is, is really taken it about as far as it can towards a presumption of declination if a company voluntarily discloses post-acquisition conduct by the acquired company and takes the appropriate remedial steps. Obviously, that includes in- integration of the acquired company into your compliance program a forensic audit. And in robust training. There's a case law update on Hoskins. The interesting thing there, Jay, is the Second Circuit has given its interpretation of Hoskins, uh, and the Department of Justice makes clear that in cases where Second Circuit case law governs, they will follow that, but they do not believe it's the correct interpretation. And so, uh, you still can have um, foreign subsidiaries of uh, U.S. companies prosecuted robustly under the FCPA, and they will do so outside of cases in the Second Circuit. Finally, Jay, I think we need to give a huge shout out to the Department of Justice for putting this uh, resource guide second edition together. This has been a massive effort, uh, multiple years in the in the works, and it it is continues to be the single best one-volume resource for all things FCPA.
0: Good stuff, Tom. Uh, We link to all your podcasts, rather your um, blogs in the show notes. and we also refer to our good friends, Jonathan Marks, and the coolest guy in compliance, Matt Kelly. Uh, After having all the spotlight to itself last week, Novartis is back in the news for corruption inside the U.S., we go to Mike Volkoff and Corruption and Crimes and Compliance. Novartis settles False Claim Act cases and pays $729 million for domestic bribery. We have a new poster child for a defective corporate culture of wrongdoing, and Novartis has joined the exclusive club with other members, including Siemens, General Motors, Wells Fargo, and others in the Misconduct Hall of Fame. FCPA violations for foreign, foreign bribery were just recently settled by Novartis, and they also settled an anti-kickback and false claims act violation case. Novartis now faces significant challenge. Is it really prepared to address its culture problems, its record of misconduct, and make the changes in commitment to right the ship, meaning to bring about a culture of compliance? In the absence of any real changes from the heads of the organization on down, the likely answer will be a resounding no. So here's how the individual schemes broke down. On the foundation scheme in the first case, Novartis agreed to pay approximately $51 million to settle its illegal use of three foundations used to pay co-payments of Medicare patients taking their drugs Gilenia and Affinitor. Novartis' Galenia is used to help treat relapsing multiple sclerosis conditions. Novartis' scheme included the sales of Affinitor, a second-line treatment for advanced renal cell carcinoma. Now, there were also bribery payments that were made to physicians. This is in the second matter. Novartis paid $591 million and agreed to forfeit $38 million to resolve anti-kickback and false claim charges for paying bribes. Novartis also agreed to pay $48 million to settle state Medicare claims. The company's pervasive and corrupt speaker program functioned as a bribery scheme to increase physician prescriptions of Novartis drugs. The scheme was known to and carried out with the full support and direction of top management in their U.S. headquarters in New Jersey. In terms of a corporate integrity agreement, Health and Human Services Office of the Inspector General entered into a five-year corporate integrity agreement, a CIA. This document requires Novartis to reduce the number of speaker programs and restricts the amount that can be paid. Under the CIA, Novartis has to implement measures to promote independence from any patient assistance programs to which it contributes. So we'll have to give this the next 6 to 12 to 18 months and see if Novartis is actually able to hire somebody to help them uh, enforce their CIA and take the steps to get on the right path.
1: Uh, Can I just suggest they hire Mike Volkoff as their CEO? So, Jay, we had an interesting piece from uh, the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. We had a guest post from Larry Kirsch, and he talked about how uh, the South African government, specifically President Ramaphosa, can begin to trust in the South African government. And I was a little bit surprised, and that's why I wanted to um, uh, cite this article. He talked about transparency in government. And the of uh, – or proposal, rather, for a law called a promotion to access to information, it's similar to the U.S. Freedom of Information Act. Uh, and he says that having this in place and r- rigorously enforced, that uh, will – certainly not be a comprehensive solution, but it will be a great first step. So uh, the Zuma regime, the past president, was well known for its secretive and unethical, unethical behavior. But if there is transparency, uh, Kirsch believes that this will lead help lead to a recovery by the South African government. Joe, we had some uh, interesting uh, a really interesting piece from a law student about reassessing due diligence in China. What, uh, what did you see in this article?
0: Thanks, Tom. This article comes to us uh, from Jenny Liang. She's a rising third year at Harvard Law School, and then it appears in the FCPA blog. Now is the right time to reassess China's due diligence and compliance. China has been mentioned in more than 60 FCPA corporate enforcement actions, including eight in 2019 alone. So the FCPA practitioners have long been wary of potential problems in this geography, and yet, with serious recent developments, potentially impacting trade and on-the-ground operations, now is a good time to reassess China's compliance risk. Here are some trends emerging from enforcement actions. China-based executives as agents for U.S. parent companies. The 2019 Jerry Lee and Mary Yang case was groundbreaking. It was the first time a Chinese national working for subsidiaries of U.S. company Herbalife were charged by DOJ as agents of the issuer parent company despite having no formal legal ties. Such a broadened agency theory could could bring numerous Chinese executives working in subsidiaries of U.S.-based firms under FCPA jurisdiction. Second trend, data privacy and cybersecurity risks in the FCPA investigations. In addition to the FCPA, there are other uh, people, of Republic of China, legal risks that multinational corps should be aware of conducting or outsourcing due diligence for investigations. When conducting investigations within China, companies should pay special attention to the following. First, ask employees to identify whether their computers and documents contain personal information. Always obtain employees' consent before collecting personal information. And finally, before transmitting documents subject to FCPA investigations outside of China, Companies should always consider whether the information is protected by the People's Republic of China's law. For instance, do the documents constitute trade secrets, state secrets, or bank secrets? Cross-border data transfers during internal or external FCPA investigations. Despite the wide scope of cybersecurity law, its language is vague. There still seems to be insufficient clarity on when and what types of data transfer could pass the security assessment. And finally, implications for international anti-corruption cooperation. Clearly, China's relationships with the West, and in particular the U.S., have entered an unstable period, which likely bodes ill for the future of international anti-corruption cooperation. Though the DOJ has emphasized its cooperation with traditional allies and that it will continue to strengthen communications with those jurisdictions, there unfortunately seems to be little chance that it will cooperate with its Chinese counterparts in the near term. So she brings up some really good points. Jay,
1: next up, uh, we had an article that I really enjoyed about a court case in London. And this comes to us, not surprisingly, from John Roush over at Dipping Through Geometries. It's a fascinating case where the Maduro regime in Venezuela is attempting to pull $1 billion plus in gold reserves out of the Bank of England. And they've The English government denied them that right, and they filed suit against uh, the the government to get the um, gold out. And the court denied, not surprisingly, their attempts on two basic issues. One was the recognition issue, which dealt with who is the the recognized government of Venezuela. The United Kingdom, like the United States, represents one uh, or, or recognizes Juan Guaido rather than Nicolas Maduro as the elected governor, governor president of uh, Venezuela. So that was the issue. And the second was uh, the lawyers geek out issue, justiciability. So can um, – uh, Maduro even brings suit, and the court concluded that the doctrine precluded uh, an inquiry into the validity of acts of Guaido uh, and the Venezuelan National Assembly because they were foreign acts of a state and non-justiciable, so they couldn't go into it. So uh, for the lawyers out there, this one's for you. It's a fascinating case. Uh, Maduro will continue to try to get his billion out, uh, but for
0: right now, he's been forestalled. All right, next up, we got a story coming to us from the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal from our friend Minky Sun. Amazon settles allegations of U.S. sanctions violations. Amazon.com, Inc. recently agreed to settle allegations that it violated multiple U.S. sanctions regulations, the U.S. Treasury Department said on Wednesday. The CB- Seattle-based e-commerce giant allegedly provided goods and services to individuals or entities subject to U.S. sanctions, primarily due to deficiencies in the company's automatic screening processes. And Amazon spokesman declined. Sorry, uh, The amount that Amazon agreed to pay to settle the allegations is about 135000 which is a paltry amount compared with the size of the company with a market cap of $1.5 But the agreement highlights the importance of implementing and maintaining effective compliance and sanctioned tools and programs, and how such tools can sometimes fail even the largest and most technically sophisticated companies. Apple last year settled allegations that it violated U.S. sanctions by dealing with a blacklisted entity for more than two years because the company's sanctioned screening tool failed to identify a blacklisted entity due to apparent differences in punctuation, and letter cases. Amazon, which voluntarily disclosed the alleged violations, and took remedial measures that played a role in the settlement total, according to OFAC. OFAC said Amazon's automated sanctioned screening processes failed to fully analyze transaction and customer data, such as common alternative spellings of a sanctioned jurisdiction, and the company's screening system failed to flag orders that could run follow U.S. restrictions. Amazon accepted and processed these orders of consumer goods and services for individuals and entities located in regions under the U.S. sanctions, such as Iran and Syria. In several hundred instances, Amazon's system allegedly failed to flag correctly spelled names and addresses. Amazon's sanctioned screening system also failed to flag orders containing addresses with variations in the spelling of the Crimea and failed to comply with reporting requirements for certain transactions involving the Black Sea Peninsula. OFAC credited Amazon with cooperating for the investigation by providing data analysis of the alleged breaches and implementing significant remedial measures to address the sanction screenings.
1: So, Jay, uh, next up we have uh risk management committees and how you can make them more effective. And this comes to us from uh our good friend Jim Deloach. Jim is just a fabulous resource to the compliance community. he at ProTivity, productivity. And uh, when Jim Deloach speaks, you need to listen. When he writes, you need to read. And here he talks about the effectiveness of management risk committees. He lists out some of the key considerations, which include clarification of the management risk committee responsibilities through its charter, include the right people, And he has a tip that, uh, rather, uh, you should have at least one member of the executive committee, so you have an executive sponsor, uh, general counsel, compliance, and uh, financial folks as well. He also talks about conducting effective meetings. And here, I I really like his point uh, uh, that is rarely said, which is when a meeting attendance declines, or senior personnel start sending a surrogate as delegates, it's a sure sign something's wrong with the substance of the meeting agendas or the way the meetings are being conducted. So uh, it's really good at, um, uh, that's a great point. Focus on group dialogue and what the executive team and board may not know. Focus on the right questions. Don't allow the committee to become stale. Keep it fresh. In other words, watch out for warning signs of a deteriorating risk culture, and to provides some questions for management and boards. But having a, a management risk committee in conjunction with your compliance committee, I think, could be a great bone
0: boon to the overall risk management of your corporation going forward. So next up, uh, the coolest guy in compliance, Matt Kelly, asks the question, is Deutsche Bank the world's most corrupt? Uh, this comes to us from his radical compliance uh, column. New York banking regulators hit Deutsche Bank with a $150 million penalty on Tuesday for its business dealings with notorious sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein and painted a damning picture of compliance failures that went on for years at the bank while it reaped millions of dollars from such a lucrative customer. The New York Department of Financial Services imposed the penalty, and in its 38-page consent order against the bank, it was not easy reading. The order shows how Epstein sailed through client onboarding at the bank in 2013, even though bank staffers had documented his previous prison sentence for soliciting underage prostitutes. This is about Deutsche Bank and pervasive compliance program failures, Linda Laswell, head of the New York Department of Financial Services, said. Deutsche Bank failed to properly monitor account activity conducted on behalf of the registered sex offender, despite ample information that was publicly available. The circumstances surrounding Mr. Epstein's earlier criminal misconduct, this substantial failure was compounded by a series of procedural failures, mistakes, and sloppiness, in how the bank managed the Epstein accounts. There was huge negligence, negligence during onboarding. The debacle began in 2013, When Epstein was looking for a new bank and a relationship manager at Deutsche Bank, who had previously worked with him, suggested that he try this bank. A junior banker wrote a memo about Epstein's background, which plainly stated that Epstein had served time for soliciting underage prostitutes and was involved in 17 legal settlements. What happened next is a bit fuzzy, but the head of wealth management replied to the relationship manager that he had talked with the head of AML anti-money laundering compliance for the Americas and the general counsel and both said that Epstein could skip further review. So Deutsche Bank had clear documented evidence that Epstein was a pimp and a pervert. These are Matt's words, not mine. And the evidence was passed along to senior executives and they saw no need for further scrutiny. So this seems to be a case of poor monitoring over the years. And only much later did more senior compliance executives point out That an earlier approval email wasn't an approval of anything, but rather by a statement of the front office managing director about a conversation. Another debacle happened in 2015, and by then, fresh reports of Epstein's misconduct has prompted compliance officers to insist that the Bank of America's Reputational Risk Committee take a look at his activities. To prepare for for this review, Epstein's relationship manager and Deutsche Bank, head of wealth management, met Epstein at his house and asked him about his latest allegations against him. The two bankers appeared to be satisfied by his response. Top everything off with miscommunication. By February 2015, the Reputational Risk Committee did decide, apparently based on assurances, Uh, between Epstein and his brokers to continue business as usual. The email listed three conditions continuing to work with Epstein. Epstein first could keep doing transactions without compliance pre-approval, provided that the business had determined these transactions did not involve any unusual or suspicious activity. Second, Deutsche Bank executives could open accounts where the activity had already been approved by wealth management, And finally, the bank would need to monitor for any further developments in connection with the reputational risk of the client relationship. Here's the kicker. The Risk Review Committee circulated that email upward to the senior banking executives, including the CEO for the Americas, but it did not go downward to the team that was actually working on the ground floor, working with Epstein and doing his transactions. Even worse, a more junior AML compliance officer misunderstood these three restrictions. So when Epstein kept wiring money to Russia for models, nobody raised any new red flags because the old flags had been allowed to flap in the breeze for years. So we have careless onboarding, poor record keeping, no serious attention paid to reputational risk, senior compliance officers not communicating correct policies to the right people. And that's how Epstein, a reprehensible man, Got away with these crimes for years.
1: So Jay, um, our our articles this week conclude with an article from Carrie Penman, Chief Compliance Officer at Navex Global, in their blog "Risk and Compliance Matters." And Carrie uh, talks about going from disaster recovery to business continuity planning. It's certainly appropriate at this point of the coronavirus health crisis having a a plan to avoid risk and disruption going forward. So how can you do so? Number one, you should empower your people. If you don't do training and communications, you'll find your critical staff is really not in a position to help. Two, enlist stars of disaster recovery. If you're unprepared, look at the bright side. Uh, You can find some gems in your workforce who excel under pressure, much like Mr. Monitors. Three, pay attention to third parties. Um, third parties are not simply your highest risks in FCPA compliance, but your supply chain is going to be critical. Do you know who your suppliers are, where they are, and what risks they may be subject to? Obviously, uh, don't forget compliance and ethics. Plan with ethics in mind and uh, re- prepare for the unpredictable. So, a really good article. The Kerry is uh, one of the stars, obviously, in in our uh, profession and, uh, great, uh, wisdom from her on this piece.
0: Jeff. So unfortunately we have three more episodes of compliance and coronavirus. Not that it's not a great series, but it's just a little bit depressing that we, uh, have seen the legs that this, uh, pandemic has, but Tom, who were the three folks that appeared with you this week? And what did you discuss?
1: So we had some interesting guests. The first is Paul Mueller. He's a a business leadership coach, and he talked about how to reset, restart, and accelerate your business. The second is probably the most unique person I've had on this series, Ian Dennis. Ian is the son of a law school classmate, and he's a senior at the University of Vermont, although he's not a New Englander, I would note, Jay. Uh, And he took a summer job where he is uh, virtually selling cutlery. And uh, he called me up and made his pitch to me, and I was really intrigued by it. He uses uh, videos and with a script, and we got into or we, we were able to detail uh, how he's trained and, more importantly, the sales strategy that his company and his employer uses, which I thought had some really interesting applications for a compliance professional, particularly the use of video in communications and training. Also... Ian is uh, a hockey savant and knows more about professional hockey than probably any person I've ever met. So we talked about the NHL and and where it may be going. Uh, It's really a fascinating talk of someone you might not think uh, would really apply to this podcast, but he's stuck in the middle of it in Burlington, Vermont. And finally, we ended up with Breida Miller. And once again, very different focus than typically you would uh, hear on one of my podcasts. Brita it has has been a caregiver for an elderly parent, and she helps companies support caregiving employees. And she came on to talk about the uh, additional challenges of a caregiving parent slash employee uh, or a child who has is caregiving to their parent at a time of COVID nineteen. So that was really interesting. Uh, over on uh, 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program, Jay, our topic this month is third-party risk. Uh, the podcast is sponsored by someone near and dear to your heart, Affiliated Monitors. Uh, and Monday, we look, we're look we looking uh, this week really at the uh, steps around the life cycle management of third parties. So Monday, we took up the questionnaire. Tuesday, due diligence, Wednesday, we looked at levels of due diligence. Thursday, how do you evaluate due diligence and clear red flags? And on Friday, compliance terms and conditions. So uh, check out that. We're going to have some special guests upcoming on this series this month, that I hope we'll uh, shake things up. Jay, there's a, a couple of upcoming webinars you wanted to tell us about. What say you about some upcoming AMI webinars?
0: Thanks, Tom. So first of all, on uh, July 22nd at 12 p.m. Eastern time, 9 a.m. West Coast time, uh, my colleagues uh, Jesse Kaplan, Deb Wah, and Dr. Amy Fogelman will be navigating the risks of prescribing opioids for chronic pain in the COVID-19 era. And then following up just about a week later on July 28th, my colleagues uh, David Shanka, Mikhail Rita Gordon, and Jonathan Redgrave We'll have a really interesting topic they'll be discussing in the pieces entitled Computers Say No, Mitigating Legal and Ethical Risks in Public Agency Use of Automated Decision-Making Tools. Uh, this is a fascinating subject. Um, Mikhail's spoken about this before in front of the ABA, and I think you'll enjoy both of them. So in the show notes, we've got uh, sign up links for you to follow. Uh, so that's what, what we've got for this week. One more I wanted to announce,
1: and this ties into our theme around the second edition of the FCPA guidance. ECI is having a best practice form and a QA and a with Brian Rabbit, who is the acting assistant attorney general for the criminal division. In other words, is taking the place filled by Brian Benchkowski, who signed the FCPA Resource Guide, second edition. Uh, that event is Thursday, July 30th from 2 to 4 Eastern. We've got uh, information and a registration link in the show notes as well.
0: Uh, you want to take us home? Sure. So uh, on behalf of Tom Fox, the voice of compliance and the compliance evangelist, and myself, Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 213 for the week ending July 10th, 2020, the second edition edition. So uh, as usual, thank you for spending some time with us uh, over your weekend. Uh, Things are becoming more and more dire as the days go on. So as always, please take care of yourself and your family. Uh, Make decisions that are positive and uh, be willing to do something to help your fellow Americans. Uh, we hope that you are safe and well, and we'll speak to you again next week.
1: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at jayrosen Rosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me, Tom Fox at TFox at TFoxlaw.com. We also got a new, sc- really cool app on the Compliance Podcast Network website where you can leave a voicemail or a message. If you like to ask us a question or have a topic you would like us to consider. I hope you'll join us again next week when Jay and I look at some of the top compliance and ethics stories for the week that is to become. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening and we look forward to visiting with you again.